Good Weird still morning, Team Gulag community, and welcome back to another episode of Down the Rabbit Hole on the Russia-Ukraine War. I'm Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Gulag Center, as always, and as always, we have Dr. Yuval Weber here, our Russia SME through the Gulag Center and Marine Corps University, and we really wanted to uh, get one episode out, largely for selfish reasons, because I'm going to go on vacation shortly, but we wanted to make sure uh, we captured the latest situation uh, in, in the war in Ukraine, and there have been some developments we're talking about here since our last discussion with Dr. Konayev. So uh, we're going to hit that here real quick and get you something to listen to over the weekend. So Yuval, welcome back. Thank and you, Ian. And so for those of you who are watching on YouTube uh, and have a visual component to this, uh, Ian, where are we and what are we actually looking at right now? Right. So um, I probably should have led with that uh, because we don't usually have this. We're not usually here together and yeah. um, we don't usually have a visual aid. So where we are is we are just adjacent to the Krulak Center. Um, this is one of our spaces and our Wargaming Director, Mr. Tim Barrick, has been using this space to uh, sort of uh, use use the space and the game, the Wargame system you see here, which is the operational Wargame system that Mr. Barrick developed when he was over at the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab and which he's continued to develop um, through the, since he left, up to and including an expansion on Ukraine that was developed very quickly as it looked like the Russian threat of invasion was going to turn into real invasion. So what we're actually seeing here is, is unique in a couple of ways. This is a, a, a rapid prototype and developed module to the, mm -hmm. the larger operational war game system that was developed very quickly. And um, the, uh, the counters and the order of battle and, and uh, some of the mechanics for the Ukrainian theater have been a, an interesting experiment in rapid war game development and prototyping in real time as a conflict is unfolding. But what we're looking at also is Mr. Barrick has been established this map here with uh, um, as up-to-date force laydowns for both sides as he can on, on sort of a regular basis because one of the projects he's been doing has been bringing students in to wargame some of the things developing based on the current positions because we can know those now because we have a lot of, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of, it, it's not all, we don't have sort of down to like, you know, the platoon to company level, but very broadly, there's a lot of open source information about where larger force laydowns are for both Russia and Ukraine. And so he's been trying to keep this up to date and then have this up to date laydown as a tool for uh, for students, for staff here at Marine Corps University, yep. as well as external audiences who are interested in using the operational war game system um, to explore their own contingencies and plans to have like to have something to fall in on ready to do it. So. Um, that's what this is. And I would note that this uh, this is not up to date as of today. So there's one of the things we're talking about is there have been some force position changes in the east over the last couple of weeks. Um, but this is uh, this is with. But then I'd say a couple of weeks is a, a fair sure. lay down for what we have here. So to the bottom of your screen, you have Crimea and the Kherson front kind of right right down. Yeah, I'm not pointing very well. So there we go. Pointing towards Kherson right there. Yep. And then off on this side, we have uh, the war in the east, which is the uh, Luhansk and Donetsk regions. And uh, the, probably the biggest change has been forces near Severodonetsk. Obviously, they've withdrawn back to a, a line further west. And so for those, uh, those viewers and listeners uh, who are not familiar with operational war game systems, um, this this board is what roughly eight feet by eight feet. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm maybe six by six. Yeah, six by yeah, six. Yeah, call it yeah, eight, eight, eight. So this is a really big thing. And can you explain what are those little um, these little squares, these little cardboard things? What do they represent, and why are some of them sticking up? Yeah. So um, the units themselves, uh, your cardboard counters, these are tactical units that are on the map. The the interesting thing about the OWS is that you can tailor the scale of it. So uh, I believe what we have here are battalion sized counters. So every every square you see, that's roughly a battalion. Some um, some supporting arms are not not battalion size, but they're smaller units. So like individual anti aircraft missile systems or rocket launchers or what have you. Uh, the counter on the map is not necessarily a battalion of those, but it just represents um, sort of smaller discrete capabilities. And uh, I think we can actually see closer to the bottom of the screen down there. Little circles, those represent aviation, um, attack helicopters, aircraft, um, you know, uh, surveillance type aircraft that are all part of the battle space here. And then the counters that are standing up, those are your higher headquarters echelons. So to show, for example, 4th Guard Tank Division, what I'm pointing to right now, this is the headquarters elements and it's controlling the elements of the 4th Guard tanks that are in that region. Um, I would note that a, an interesting aspect of OWS is that you can attack the headquarters elements, which has bad effects for you when those things are gone, no longer providing their, their command and control or sustainment functions. So one of the things to note is when we're, when we're looking at the board here, whether we're playing with dice, whether we have a judge to adjudicate uh, you know, various moves, what this is meant to do is in effect, give people, give the players, people who are participating, a way of thinking about what do actual moves on the board, what they could mean in real life. So it's a way to test out ideas, test out theories, test out different tactics or operations, or even bigger strategies altogether. Yeah, exactly. And and a lot of those sort of the bigger strategic piece, they're not represented by counters on the map, but the decisions of the players that are spaced around here. And uh, probably worth noting um, here that I've, a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, Again, time has lost all meaning. Um, but we, one of the iterations run with War College students here, we had Dr. Weber as basically as Putin providing the Russian strategic decision making in terms of, uh, you know, what their main efforts would be, um, where their supporting efforts would be, where they might want to withdraw and reconsolidate. Um, so those are the kind of values of, of getting the people around the map to, to make those decisions with the unit counters there and with the the game the framework does is provide you uh, as much fidelity as a tabletop game mm -hmm. can at the operational level with the tools you would use to make those decisions. But how the players decide to make those things interact is, is up to them. Um, and what this, this sort of rolling real-time update provides is um, we, 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 the players don't have to sort of prognosticate what things are gonna look like in a couple of weeks because Mr. Barrett's been keeping it up to date. Mm -hmm. So you can fall in on things the way they are, and now you're presented with, you know, as close to today, the strategic challenges that both sides are facing. And, uh, and how they decide to behave from that point forward is where the, the, uh, the training, the education, um, the, uh, the, the real deep strategic thought sort of comes out of. So great. So I just wanted to note that obviously for some, some viewers are going to be extremely expert at this. Uh, some viewers will have never seen this before. And so that's what we're looking at. We're looking at a big tabletop game that helps elucidate how a war uh, has been fought uh, as well as it might be fought.
Yes. Okay. And oh, oh, one last foot stop, yeah. and then um, we'll, we can go into the, the discussion about what's on the map. Um, yeah. But for anyone who is a incoming student to Marine Corps University for the upcoming academic year, uh, some of you, depending on your school, are already here. So just realize this is one of the tools that is available to mm -hmm. you as a student um, via uh, via the Crew Life Center staff here and via Mr. Barrick as the director of Wargaming. Um, this is one of many tools that we have to help with whether it's uh, an individual research project or a conference group or a an entire school because Mr. Barrick and the center, we have run these for entire schools. Um, these are tools that are available to you during your studies here uh, to help, you know, really dig into some to, to make prob to make a take a problem from the abstract and make it real, make it concrete with things that you can move around and interact with and get more dynamic learning out of it. Krillex Center for Innovation and Future Warfare. Yeah, it's in the name. It's in the name and the and future here it is. is the future is here. It is now. Okay, so now that we have that, um, where are we in the conflict? So, um, as you mentioned, one one thing that uh, um, is not yet updated on the board because it is a relatively recent development is there has been um, Ukrainian withdrawal and uh, and it's withdrawal certainly under Russian pressure, but. Withdrawal away from some of the cities in the east to uh, to more defensible lines a little bit further west, which uh, I believe has now resulted in um, all of let me get sure my map right here. All of the Luhansk region is yes. now essentially under Russian control, military and, control, and roughly seventy five percent of Donetsk region is also under Russian control. And so what we can see is that, and again, um, that big clump of red and yellow, there's a bit less yellow there as the Ukrainians have uh, fallen back. So we can assume that if it's taken the Russians, let's say, what the past two months or so, uh, to basically uh, conquer all of uh, Luhansk region, um, you know, in some places, let's say 50 to 150 kilometers, and, you know, because the, the line itself is very long, uh, this suggests that it'll take another uh, several weeks, if not a month or two, for Russia to get to basically all of Donetsk region. And it could very well be that the Ukrainians basically have taken this time in order to not really defend, you know, Luhansk in the sense of trying to reconquer it at this point, but just to slow the Russian advance in Luhansk in order to uh, provide for greater defensive lines behind them. Mm -hmm. But also at the same time, as you can see at the bottom of the screen, uh, to permit the counteroffensives in Kherson um, to actually proceed because of so much Russian tension uh, to to Luhansk. Yeah. So and so I think this leads into one of the the first things we were going to sort of go over today, which is um, there's been a tremendous, certainly a tremendous material cost in Russian advancing this far and in Ukraine trying to make that advance as costly as possible. There's also been a significant human cost, mm -hmm. and you mentioned the Russian casualties. Uh, you know, I'm not sure what the rough count is now, but I think it's north of 35,000. Sure. Um, with a lot of that happening in this effort down here in the last couple months, but also um, on the Ukrainian side, um, certainly those casualty numbers have been, you know, for operational security reasons, we don't have as much insight because they're obviously trying to protect that information. But there have been, um, you know, anecdotes and some reporting from this particular front. It's cost them a lot, um, right? In terms of forces, so. What do what what can we say right now about the the human the, the human mm -hmm. strain um, sort of the the 
the spiritual or moral impact that this this grinding conflict has had on both forces so far. You know, it's interesting because we think, you know, in terms of, you know, just morale, equipment, and war aims as sort of like what are the, you know, all enveloping things that come down to if you are new, you know, let's get it down to like the most micro level. If you're a Russian soldier who's moving forward in Luhansk versus a Ukrainian soldier who's moving backwards from Luhansk, do you believe that the war is going well? today and how how optimistic are you that your side is going to be in a position of strength let's say december 31st of this year mm -hmm. so you're going into the new year's holiday which like across obviously the world celebrates new year's but in let's say slavic countries or let's say former soviet union countries there is no holiday that really comes close to uh new year's in terms of full societal uh, Walpurgis, um, May 9th is sort of like the only thing that comes close, but you know, December 31st is much bigger. So in that sense, what, let, let's, I guess, talk about it from there in terms of morale, in terms of the equipment, in terms of war aims, would you rather be a Russian soldier moving forward in Luhansk right now, or a Ukrainian soldier moving backwards from Luhansk? Yeah, well, I think in, in that perspective, um, your situation as the Ukrainian soldier has a probably better outlook. Um, mm -hmm. Just maybe not in terms of your own personal survivability, which actually I have a, I have a question about that here in a little bit, but in terms of, uh, you know, where everyone's going to be, you know, what lines are going to be holding downrange, you know, if you can measure Russian progress and, you know, a certain number of kilometers over a certain amount of time, it's been, steady because there has been forward movement, mm -hmm. but it's been slow and it's been extremely costly for them to make that forward progress. So if I'm, if I'm the Russian soldier I'm, and I'm like, we've lost, you know, X number of thousands over the last couple of weeks to get X number of kilometers forward. Um, I, I don't want to, you know, be overly callous, but you know, you could almost make a personal calculus of this is how far, this is how many weeks it's going to take for me to die. You know, right. for me wow. to, to be yeah. to for me to be added to that account just based on the uh the attritional calculus now the thing and so that's that's not great for the attacking force knowing that your numbers you, you could almost do the math and your number is going to be up like when you get to this line or get to this town um although on the ukrainian side um i think one element of recording i've been seeing coming out of this particular area has been um there there's just no break for those soldiers either right, right? like right. there have been some people coming off the line saying you know my my company used to be this many you know now it's like a quarter or a fifth of the size it used to be sure the only break you get is when you're wounded right, right. which lets you come off the line and go somewhere else you know but otherwise there's no break until you're wounded or you die which in the short term that's that's not a that's not great for morale either mm -hmm. um although you can at least say that you know come Come December 31st, they will have only gotten this far. Again, I can almost do the math of based on the rate of progress. They won't get by December 31st, they're going to be a lot less far than they want it to be, you know. But again, will I be there when that day happens? Um, it's it, it's a it's a hard calculus, I, I would say, for both sides. Although, you know, I guess we hit this a little bit later on too. Is you know that longer outlook you know what does what does my resistance and my 
you know, my my contribution to this fight. What does it get me on the Ukrainian side? Maybe it's a little cold comfort, you know, but you could at least say, I know that my contribution means they only get this far by December 31st. Maybe that's enough to to keep you going. Um, But for the Russian side, you know, my contribution means I'm going to die by this point or I will be dead at this at this line by December 31st. And maybe I can even calculate it to October 31st. Right. Like I'm not going to make it to December based on the rate of casualties and the rate of progress. And so this is part of, you know, when you ask the original question about the spiritual and the spiritual is why is a person holding a gun, pointing it at someone and shooting and being shot at in return is for the Ukrainian side. Like, you know, in one sense, we're looking at little cardboard counters that indicate, you know, this unit doing that particular thing or what have you. But ultimately, the yellows that you can see on this, those are people defending their homeland, their houses, their homes, their language, their families, etc. The people in the red side don't have that. Mm-hmm. They have this essentially a bit more abstract idea that all the people on the yellow side, on the Ukrainian side, are just bad people. And that if only they were, they would, you know, listen to reason that yeah. they would put down their arms and essentially, you know, uh, welcome the embrace of uh, the, the larger brother here. And so that in essence is part of the discussion about what is the source of morale in the micro. It can be really hard to be a Ukrainian soldier right now, but in the macro, there is a purpose to this. And so that essentially helps lead into saying, you know, like, well, is a morale better or worse on one side or the other? The reason that, you know, the people keep fighting, at least on the Ukrainian side, is the alternatives are very bad. Yeah. And and that's why I I, I think that macro micro yeah. is is helpful because Ukraine can the Ukrainian soldier can visualize the bad a lot better because they they know if they stop fighting or, you know, if they cede more territory than is absolutely necessary, they know what the Russians did in Bukha. They know what the Russians have done in all the places that they have, you know, what they've done in Mariupol, um, you know, any place that falls under Russian occupation, they know what's going to happen. Yeah. Right? In very visceral, vivid, you know, full color spectrum, they know exactly what's going to happen. And if that's like, if it's your town or your province that's next in line, um, you know, you're not going to let that happen, um, even though your personal experience can be pretty grinding and miserable where it is right now. As you said, I don't know what the Russian visual is, you know, of 200 yards away. This person is bad. Like, is that enough to get me up and, and go those 200 yards and try and kill that person with a good chance of me not making it? I, I don't know. The, 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 the calculus is definitely, definitely different. And I think there's mm-hmm. that that more visceral, real knowledge of you Ukraine knows exactly what it's defending uh, is a it's a difference. So we get the sense of, you know, what each side is fighting for. Sometimes it could be very specific or very broad. And we also were asking in a certain sense, you know, I'd raised, you know, are you looking forward to December 31st or, you know, what do you think December 31st is going to look like? And so part of that is another condition of how the war is going and where it might be going next is thinking about equipment. Now, in a number of recent episodes, we've laid down like a very sort of clear marker for what the end of the summer or summer fighting season needs to hold for both sides, which is the Ukrainians need to not lose and the Russians need to win. 
just sort of very different, uh, you know, objectives. And part of that is uh, the equipment on each side. Now, there's um, a scholar named uh, Lawrence Friedman uh, from King's College London who made a comment the other day that, you know, although we're in 2022 right now, given what the Ukrainians are getting from abroad versus what the Russians have to use now that, you know, a lot of their contemporary equipment is being ground up during this fight, mm -hmm. is that Russia is transitioning or evolving into a 20th century military and that Ukraine is transitioning into a 21st century military. So that as Russia is losing its contemporary stuff, yeah. they have to go to the vintage materials. And as Ukraine is burning through the Soviet era stuff, they're getting replaced by more modern stuff altogether. And so in that regard, you know, we've talked, we've sort of, you know, been reading a lot in the news about the long range artillery, long range rocket systems. What do those actually do and essentially, what have we observed um, in sort of in this conflict over the last couple of weeks? Yeah. So, and we were sort of hitting on this uh, mm -hmm. before we started recording, but it's so we're starting to see, um, and I think you had mentioned a, a news piece just mm -hmm. from today about the effects of the the precision rocket artillery systems that U.S. Um, among others said, but the U.S. is going to provide the um, the high Mars or the high mobility artillery rocket system which is a, it lets you, one, it lets you shoot farther than conventional tube artillery. So you have a range advantage, but the, uh, the munitions that you use, they're, they're precision munitions, right? They're, um, they're GPS guided. So you can, you know, rather than hoping a shell lands within, uh, we like to say on the, you know, Marine fire support side, like you got a grid square, which is a one by one kilometer area. That's a lot of space. Yeah. Um, you can now, to be clear, you can refine artillery much better than that. But at the end of the day, um, a, a dumb, unguided artillery munition has a certain, um, we call it circular error probability, which is like there's a there's an imaginary circle on the ground. And depending on the fidelity of your targeting information and, and the skill of your gunners, you know, you can calculate the probability that that shell is going to land in that circle. Mm -hmm. It's not a small circle. <laughs> um, whereas with your HIMARS systems, um, even the shorter range rockets based on the guidance, that circular error or probability, that imaginary circle, it's a lot smaller, mm -hmm. which means you, you have a much greater percentage of the thing you're trying to shoot in that circle being hit with that one munition rather than that larger circle where you might need a bunch of munitions to actually hit the thing in that circle that you care about. So long way of saying, um, we've started here, you know, um, seeing some some video footage and hearing from the Ukrainian side, that those systems are starting to be used with effect. So there's uh, one item has been a number of Russian ammunition depots getting destroyed in, in very vivid 4th of July fashion. Whether there have been those, reports of four uh, being hit in recent days. Yeah, and and those things when they go up, they go up big, because um, it's ammunition. It's it's stuff that goes boom, and it's all going boom together. Um, so um, certainly, if if that's if it's the the high Mars and those types of systems that are having that effect, that's that's showing they're being employed gainfully. Um, although the thing that we also mentioned is are the quantity you know the systems that they have now are is that sufficient to really have a, a larger impact beyond mm -hmm. a handful of targets, which I, I, it may be probably too early to tell. And so we had known from White House press releases that four of these HIMARS systems have been given to the Ukrainians. 
And just as we were preparing for this this particular episode, the uh, I believe it was the Secretary of the Ukrainian National Defense and Security Council said that nine HIMARS systems are now in Ukraine. So nine, five more than four. Yeah. Uh, and so each one of those that if they are being used, those are going after very high value static targets. And so part of when we then think about the morale question is, what are you shooting at? Why are you shooting at it? Um, and do you feel confident about yourself surviving this particular encounter, the next particular engagement, so on and so forth, is that part of the short versus long-term thinking on the Russian and Ukrainian sides is if the Ukrainians believe that today is tough, tomorrow might be tough, but in essence, the future looks brighter because all of this really high value, really lethal stuff is coming in on our side. Then you might think, you know what, I'm going to do my fighting. And even if I don't particularly survive, I am going to be sacrificing myself for something that has a chance of succeeding, which is defending the country from invasion. Whereas on the other side, if you're starting to get the vintage equipment and you can and start to see that from February to July, the Ukrainians are getting better as this thing is going on and that your side is not, then you start to think, when is my number up? Yeah, and this so this in terms of how each side is using those types of munitions, we'll won't go into that here. Um, and you know, I know there's, there's been a lot of talk and focus, and it's not just about HIMARS. Like there, there's almost like mm-hmm. the weapon system of the week that is the uh, you know the we we got to get them more now because that's going to be the, the game changer. And mm-hmm. I think we got to be clear. Like there's no there's no silver bullet out there. There's you know the the what are they the tenth HIMARS system is yeah. not going to be the thing that turns yeah. this whole show around, right? But the point is, every single one of those um, just makes it that much harder on the Russian side when you expand Ukraine's ability to put precision fires on those high-value targets you care about. And I, you know, looking at the ammunition depots, if if it is indeed the HIMARS causing those very vivid effects on video, um, you know, we already know that Russian logistics have been challenged. Every single one of those lots just makes it that much harder to keep that slow drive going it's all every it's going to make it slower it's going to make their ability to do that next kilometer a little bit harder because if they're if they're a if their uh their strategy now is munitions heavy right saturate the line with artillery and then and then follow up with troops clean out which way what's ever left well you start taking away the number of artillery shells they can do that that makes that rate of advance not as much uh, you know mm-hmm. it's going to be incrementally smaller but um, you start losing more depots, every single bit of it makes it harder. And to your point of Ukraine needs to not lose, that's that's going to help them not lose by making every right. little bit just a little bit harder. Um, so so we have, you know, but now we have an idea of what with, you know, it's it's uh, it's not it's not a, a wealth of systems, but it's more systems than they had. And we're seeing the kind of thing they're going after with those precision munitions, because that's the kind of thing those munitions are good for, you know, mm-hmm. static, high value, high payoff targets. Conversely, we know that Russian precision stocks have been going down, as you mentioned, like they've been 21st century is the precision century. They're going back into the 20th century, um, which makes it curious to see them using some of their precision, their limited precision munitions going after targets like shopping centers, you know, which was very, you know, again, very vividly captured recently. Uh, um, I forget which kind of munition it was, but it was a one of their larger, you know, long range ballistic weapon systems 
going after a shopping mall. Um, not an accident, right? Because that that's the type of system that's got the precision to hit a large static target. So Ukrainians are using their, you know, smaller number of precision munitions, but they're going after high, high value, high payoff targets. Russia's going after shopping malls with their limited number of precision stocks. Mm -hmm. what, what does this indicate in terms of their, what they consider a valuable target with a type of system that they're going to have less and less of the longer this goes on? So, I mean, ultimately it comes down to what do the, what do attacks on shopping centers and, um, in Kramatorsk a few weeks ago, they attacked a train station uh, that was prepared for people to like evacuate the region. Is you know we see a certain replay of uh, what they did in Syria, and you know going back into Chechnya as well, is the belief that part of the other side's will to fight is that the other side, whether it's Syrians or Ukrainians or Chechens, is that that side is not willing to incur civilian casualties at scale on a consistent basis. And so ultimate, and so what I think the, um, the attacks on the shopping centers are meant to do is to create enough pressure from basically the civilians onto their political leaders, mm -hmm. believing that that's the way that sort of public opinion works in, in other countries, you know, not their own, you know, they're pretty well insulated from public pressure uh, themselves, but the belief that in essence, pain on civilian populations makes a difference abroad. And that is this sort of thinking that leads to attacks on shopping centers, on um, uh, theaters, on uh, train stations that don't have much military value, but let the people know on the other side, you're about, if your government keeps fighting, bad things are going to happen to you. So you should tell them what's good for them because what's good for you is good for them. And that's the way they're trying to induce the Ukrainians to stop resisting and stop fighting. Yeah. So again, we were talking about this before we hit record, but the, the, the wisdom, I guess, behind that calculus, why, why do they think it's going to work in this case? Because um, we, we went through this whole laundry list of historical scenarios where um, at greater scale, um, um, significantly greater scale in terms of inflicting civilian casualties. We've seen any number of conflicts in the 20th century where that was a theory toward victory. You punish mm -hmm. the civilian population enough, they will either they'll just they'll they'll quit or they will apply pressure to the you know the the, the government to quit or come to a concession or something. Um, and we, we collectively we could think of very few examples where that was the case. You know I. Not everything is World War II, right? But that probably has the largest volume of examples of all sides attempting to do that to make the other side quit, and mm -hmm. it just didn't. It, it didn't work. Um, you know, we we reduced German cities to rubble. Um, the Germans killed Russian, kill, killed lots of civilians in lots of places at scale, um, and could not could never kill enough to break the will of the population to to force that thing to happen. Um, you know, but even more recently, uh, looking at, you know, Russian activities in, in Chechnya, for example, um, maybe at the, at the end of the day, there was a, a, a concession or a conclusion, but it took a long time to get there. And the point sure. was um, civilian populations and a, or a, a defender um, being attacked like that can be willing to put up with a, a lot to resist. 
to defend, to stop the invader, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have talked about um, in, in our pre-recording here, it seems like as long as there's even a, it can be a very modest um, glimmer of the future where you think you can still resist to that point. If you have that, the the, the violence against civilian populations, um, uh, whether it's body counts or whether it's destroying cities to send a message, like if you think you can still resist down the road, they will resist past the rat, you know, past any rational point, really. If you think you have a capacity to stop them, the resistance continues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, it's interesting in, in this case, uh, if you compare it with some civilian populations, like, I, I hate to go back again, but, you know, say the German or the Japanese population, World War II, right? Um, from our perspective, their ability to resist, like, was just, was collapsing in on itself for both of them at the end of the wars, but they still thought they could, which is what drove very vicious resistance up until the very end. Um, when they had no, their December of 1945 did not look better at all compared to the Allies' December in terms of new equipment, new manpower, um, mm-hmm. something that could change the calculus. Um, whereas here, um, Ukraine's only got more coming in. Right. Like, like there, there is, they are not bottled up in the way you know Germany or Japan was at the end of the war. Um, they've got, they've got open lines of supply, and as you said the 21st century stuff is coming in, more is coming in. So their capacity to resist is only going to increase. Sure. Um, and, and, the, and the Russia has no way of shutting off that spigot militarily, at least. So why, why is the Russia, why, you know, what is Putin's calculus about trying to break civilian will when it's not, it, they're not even close to the same condition where you could maybe think, okay, a little bit more suffering will make him quit. He doesn't have the ability to do that. So why is it, why is he using those those very limited now exquisite weapons to try and achieve that? So we can come up with a number of let's say plausible ideas. One is that unlike the Ukrainian military, shopping centers don't shoot back. So destroying something True. for the sake of destroying something, um, you know, creating that turbulence within the civilian population. So what does the turbulence actually? What does it produce? We've seen that one of the basically successes of the Russian war effort in Syria was that by bombing population centers, it created these migration flows that went into Europe that at minimum helped the like the German far right enter into parliament for the first time, probably got Brexit over the line. Mm-hmm. So the idea here is that if you create panic in the population, you create these migration outflows, which creates social dissatisfaction across the rest of Europe. The idea being like, you know, people don't want all these war-torn refugees or refugees from like these war-torn countries coming in. So that seems to be part of it. The, and I guess the other sort of sense of like what can be done here is that if this creates just more logistical problems for the rest of, you know, for the Ukrainian government in the Mm -hmm. rest of these areas, that it just limits their ability to, you know, conduct the war as they see fit. And the idea is that if Ukraine is more it's more difficult for ukraine to conduct the conflict or you know it's defense of the country and you know uh, all these uh, migrants are creating social dissatisfaction mm-hmm. abroad then we get to this idea of what are the ways that russia can get the western aid which is not only keeping ukraine in the fight but is essentially increasing ukraine's ability to fight perhaps some combination of making western states less willing to give 
you know, really lethal mm -hmm. stuff and making Ukraine less able to actually use it. And so that could be a reason of why the shopping centers, the, the, the children's theaters, the, uh, the train stations keep getting bombed in order to just make it less, less interesting, not uh, interesting, not the right word, but for Western governments and Western publics to just want to wash their hands of this particular affair. Who knows whether that's going to be successful? And so part of, you know, when we're thinking about the morale of the fighting, the equipment, um, we're also thinking what are like the larger war aims of, you know, this conflict. At the beginning of the conflict and sort of, um, again, so I'm currently, I guess, where I'm sitting and for those who are, are watching, this table is very big. And where Ian and I were originally uh, located had some very strong Putin energy because we are at least six plus feet away from yeah. each other. Um, but I'm currently sitting somewhere in either Belarus or Lithuania uh, because the, the map ends here. Yeah, and I think you're in Belarus. You I'm in Belarus. Yeah, it depends on how far north Belarus comes on this thing. Um, so at the beginning of this war, Clearly, what the Russians want to do is, in effect, create the downfall of the Zelensky government so that a new government would come to some sort of different understanding with the Russian government, whether that was fully implementing Minsk II, whether that was, you know, some new thing altogether, whether it would be okaying an annexation of all of Donetsk and Luhansk, whatever the particular thing was, those were pretty big war aims. And those were war aims that basically did not come true in the first week of the conflict. Mm. So now Russia's in a much bigger conflict because although the war aims were big, they actually thought it would be uh, easily achievable. Now that the war is grinding on and we're in our, what, fifth or sixth month of yeah, the conflict? We're, we're, the, we're on the front side of month six now. We're on the front side, <clears throat> which is just insane. and and. When we started this, we had hoped that this would not go on for more than a couple, you know, this series. But again, if we are in six, we're in roughly six months into this conflict, five, six months into this conflict, where do you assess in terms of thinking about the big picture? And we can then talk about Russia on the other side. Where do you assess basically the, the Western unity is on this, like the Western camp, so to speak. Do you feel that, you know, the migrants coming into Europe, does that make a difference? Is the United States, is like the British, um, are all the Europeans writ large? How do you see the conflict basically evolving into a, you know, generational conflict or into something about sort of like what the West means? Yeah, well, I think uh, in terms of the the targeting specifically and then yeah. the ripple effects, it, it seems like Putin thinks that time is on his side in mm -hmm. that sense, um, which actually, as you mentioned that I, uh, this, this even ties into when we had Dr. Uh, Rosella Capella Zelensky in here about the, um, who the target audience is, you know, so as you describe, like, why are we wasting those munitions on, on non-military targets when he doesn't have a lot? The point is Ukraine is, not to be, you know, callous about it, they're not the target audience, right? It's all of those ripple effects bleeding over into adjacent countries, causing their own, um, their own friction, their own turmoil, their own uncertainty, which is sort of similar with the wheat situation, right? Like 
using that food as the weapon. They're not going to starve Ukraine per se, but they're going to put some serious pressure on those countries that relied on Ukrainian grain and wheat, you know, right. for their daily subsistence. That's where the pressure is going to come and, from. That's the target audience. And since we had that episode with Dr. Rosella uh, Capella-Zelensky, um, one of the things that we mentioned at the tail end of that episode is what it seemed to be is that the blockade of the Black Sea uh, and the grain that would ordinarily be exiting to like different mm -hmm. parts of the world, we are starting to see the, the beginnings of food instability across Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East. And the theory that we basically surmised at the time was that this particular grain blockade is not only meant to you know, deprive, let's say, Ukraine of revenues, but really in terms of creating food instability and thus civil instability and therefore government instability in lots of countries that would then basically have their populations moving to basically wealthier areas such as Europe. So what we saw in Syria in terms of weaponizing migrant flows, mm -hmm. we are basically at the first, the first hints of that are starting right now in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in the Middle East, with the idea being, we will starve these people so that they become Europe's problem. So that's you know what we're trying, what we're basically seeing from different perspectives, iterations of the same strategy. What are the things that cr can create different problems within Europe, so that Europe looks at various migrant flows, various you know churning of you know an entire part of uh, the continent, and then think how can we make this stop. Yeah. And well, you know, with the focus on Europe, it's, there's that one dynamic there. Although it's interesting, we're also talking about uh, how Finland and Sweden have now, um, uh, I don't know if the process is totally complete, but Turkey yeah. removed its objection and they're marching forward with a session, which if, if this conflict were really about the encroachment of NATO, um, he's achieved the exact opposite aims, right. which is NATO is now a lot closer and has a lot more access points along the much longer border. Um, with him. So, and I, I guess my, my point is there, he may expect certain dynamics and, and clocks and the pressure applied to those clocks to play out in his favor. Um, the problem is the longer the war goes on, you start getting into these realms where you, you don't know where things are going to go because you, you could maybe predict or expect out to a certain time frame. You know, if the wars, if it's a month long, right? Like if I, my, I achieve my objectives in a lightning war, it's a month long, I'm gonna have some short-term pain, right? But I'll have my objectives after a month um, and, and, I'm, and I'm okay with that. Now we're into month six and all of those, all those second, third order effects that he's now trying to achieve with, you know, with food crisis, with um, migrant flows, instability, um, those, those can work favorably for him on the duration, but all of these unfavorable things now that he can't necessarily control are going to start to play out. So NATO just got bigger, um, yeah. which was, you know, he said was something that was really concerning to him. Although we also were talking yeah. about before, yeah. he's kind of blase about it, you know, yeah, at the so, end of the day. So I saw him, uh, you know, give comments on Russian TV in which uh, the question was posed about, you know, NATO expansion, Finland, Sweden. And uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically, said, you know, they have different security issues, you know, it's fine. Um, you know, they can join if they want, as if, you know, his permission was the thing that they were uh, waiting for. Um, 
but he segued, you know, did that hard politician pivot towards talking about Ukraine as the anti-Russia. And so we'll try to like find that clip and, you know, maybe put it in our show notes. But if people were thinking that NATO expansion was the cause of this conflict, literally NATO expansion is happening and that did not merit more than 10 seconds of his time. Mm-hmm. Ukraine as basically the bulwark of something that is like Russia, but is opposed to Russia. That is what clearly animated him uh, from the beginning. And so what are the effects? We've started to see that uh, units that are otherwise in, you know, the the high north, the Arctic of Russia, are starting to join the fight in Ukraine. So in fact, this war is making Russia less secure in the Arctic. We will also see that once uh, Finland and Sweden join, the Baltic Sea becomes a NATO lake. And so therefore, Russia's ability to put ships and particularly submarines into the Baltic Sea will become that much more difficult because there are going to be many more eyes and many more mm-hmm. assets in place to, to basically uh, check Russia uh, getting into the North Atlantic. And of course, with uh, NATO expanding uh, several new battle groups into Romania, Bulgaria, um, uh, <laughs> where are the other battle groups coming in there? Uh, Hungary and Slovakia. Um, We now have, in addition to what we're already in, uh, Estonia, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland, and there's going to be a new U.S. Army headquarters permanently stationed Mm -hmm. in Poland. We, in fact, have, if NATO expansion was the thing that Putin was trying to avoid, we now have, and it'll be sort of a NATO encirclement that did not exist before this war because NATO is responding to the clear like war of conquest that is happening right now. And so then when we're like trying to again think, thinking about the micro, like morale, thinking about sort of like, what is the mezzo, like in terms of the equipment, and then thinking about like the macro, talking about or thinking about war aims, what the war has shown that because Russia is not going to give up, even if like all this NATO stuff is happening, is that they're looking to make Ukraine as small as possible. And Ukraine is responding in kind by trying to solicit support from as many partners as possible. And NATO is responding in kind by by clearly behaving as if, if Ukraine falls, then who's next? We We are seeing in effect right now, the reshaping of the security architecture in Europe for at minimum the next generation. Mm -hmm. And there we start to think, you know, how do we put all this stuff together? The sanctions, you know, regime, which is, you know, we haven't mentioned in in this particular episode yet, but we've mentioned in many before, is that we're starting to see it starting to bite. And what does that mean? One is that, uh, (laughs) you know, one of the things that I follow basically every day is read the Russian newspapers, you know, just to see what's, what's happening today. Uh, one new law that's uh, going through the Duma, the Russian parliament, is that the uh, maximum age of enlistment has been raised to, what do you think that number is now? Um, I'm, I'm just going off of sort of corollaries over here. Um, so I, I didn't know what the, the maximum age was before in Russia, but I'm going to, I'll hazard and say we're now up into like the, uh, the 40s or 50s, maybe. It's going up to 65. Well, you know, they say that, you know, 40 is the new 20, right? So 65 is the new 40. So those hale and hearty Russian males can uh, still contribute. 
And so part of that is there is now in effect a another law that's going through the parliament, um, which is going to allow for basically the legal basis for a war footing of the entire Russian economy, which is, you know, like I think we'll put in the show notes like all the details. Um, but the but in effect, what it means is that the government can take over private industry and they can also put uh, government contracts onto private firms whether those firms are interested or not. Mm -hmm. And so by raising the enlistment age to 65, obviously, I don't know how many granddads are gonna be taking up arms, but part of that is how many people will be in, in effect inducted into the Russian army, but working at basically more or less military, military contracts while still at home in Moscow, St. Petersburg mm -hmm. or wherever else. But that in effect, the state and the war economy goes into the civilian economy, goes into private industry. And so that you generally have everyone in uniform, even if they're getting nowhere close to the battlefield. And so when we then think about like the truly the macro aspect of what's going on in the Russian economy, is that this entire country, the entire economy of Russia is basically being reorganized for the war effort. And if the war effort and the war aims are basically infinite and indefinite, then we're going to have a Russia that's going to be able to fight for a long time. But once that war, once this war is over, how does Russia come back from that? And that ultimately is the post-war question. Whatever Russia gains on this battlefield, you know, this stuff that we're looking at right mm -hmm. here, they're going to have to do something with it. And what they do with it that is truly a, a question that we don't know the a reasonable answer to anymore. Yeah, and uh, I this might even tie back to some of the, the the points about you know eating your seed corn. Basically, we raised in the past. It's like if if they do that that large scale expansion, um, you're for for the short term, you're starting to consume the things mm -hmm. you would need for you know you know better long term prosperity and commercial health and industrial health. Or down to just having enough people in your country, you know, to to keep things running. Um, so, yeah, but we we don't know how much of their seed corn they're willing to eat. I guess at this point, uh, or what or what it's going to look like. So, and so perhaps what we can take up in you know following following episodes is that when we think about war termination, this war is going on until one side loses the capacity to just like carry on fighting. But it seems that the Russians are willing to literally take the entire society, mobilize everyone, even if they don't call it mobilization, but they're willing to mobilize all of Russia on one side. On the other side, what we can see is that in essence, Ukraine has become the defining feature for many countries in the Euro-Atlantic Alliance, as well as other allied countries. So this war is gonna go on for a long time. So the war is, only going to end until if one side is unable to keep going or that both sides believe that there's some alternative to fighting that is basically worth exploring and finding some sort of uh you know peace settlement from there that's probably unlikely for these two sides because there's probably no settlement uh that is going to be satisfactory to putin that is going to be satisfactory to the ukrainians and there's probably nothing that the Ukrainians are, and basically what the Ukrainians want is Putin gone. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Which is also like, I don't think Putin's unsatisfactory go for. to Putin. Unsatisfactory to yeah. Putin. So we have this essentially this um this sense where this war is now actually going to go on for a long time because the stakes are too high. There's no real compromise between them um, that is at least immediately achievable. And so in that regard, I guess that is sort of like where we can start to think about is what does a full mobilization from Russia look like in terms of thinking, what does that mean in terms of Russia's ability to carry on and go on, um, not just as a fighting force, but as like a normal functioning society mm -hmm. at home. Yeah, and I guess a, a correlate question to that is going to be, they attempt to do that full mobilization, you know, does the rest of the country go along with that? Um, because the the mobilization without calling it a mobilization, I, I think we've talked about this before, is like it seems to be a line that Putin is not willing to cross, at least yet, by by sort of calling it what it is, everybody to arms, we're all in on this war effort. He's not done that yet. Right. And there were there were a few points in the past where we thought this could be the point where he does that, but he didn't. Um, and so instead of, so obviously calling for general mobilization means that the special military operation is not going swimmingly. Mm -hmm. That's in essence, that's the, so we can also say that Putin is not this like crazy person. He, his preferences are just not our, our own. So he recognizes that full mobilization indicates that something has not gone well. So what we see is basically everything that comprises mobilization, but without calling it as such. Yeah, which, and, and again, the question we don't know the answer to yet is, does there come a point where the rest of Russian society is like, this looks like full mobilization and smells like it, but we're not calling it, you know, do they go along with it or do they, um, has has the information, the messaging inside Russia been sufficient that um, they've they've laid the conditions where they would go along with that anyway? Because again, you know, I keep watching the the Russian news clips, right? And they're just bonker stuff that comes out of their mouths, right. um, you know. But they've they've certainly been beating the drama of like uh, willing to accept high costs. Um, you know, we're not at war just with Ukraine; we're at war with NATO. You know, which implies that you know. Uh, it's going to take a lot more to get what we want against NATO because all of NATO is fighting against us. The point is that they're like they're laying the information foundation mm -hmm. um, to get people to buy into that. You know, they would need to to do the sacrifices or make the changes that that functionally full mobilization would do. Um, when that when those full mobilization mechanics start hitting, though, like it's different when they talk about it on TV. To well, now I have to you know sacrifice more and change my whole lifestyle. To go and support this do they all go along with that? we don't we don't know i guess is what I... we don't know but that's you know i just have the larger sense that you know we're starting to see shortages in terms of you know stock of uh, things like not of the military stuff but obviously um because like microchips aren't coming in lots of other goods that would otherwise be imported are not coming in so even if russia had onshored much of it both military and uh, civilian industrial production, if the components are still produced abroad, then in effect you may have like a like a server farm for computers. Mm -hmm. But if you're not getting the spare parts, you have this very expensive thing which does not work and is functionally a brick. So that to me is going to be the thing that I'm basically watching every single day. Is at what point 
does the functioning of the Russian economy start to seize up a little bit here, a little bit there, and then you basically have a bank run in terms of production. Mm -hmm. And you know, then, you know, because the war effort is still ongoing, everything that still works has to go for military production. And that's essentially the bigger question of where does, what does success look like? Not, you know, what is today's date, July 7th, 22? Yeah. But what does it look like August, September, October, November, December, in which there's no more growth and you're just managing decline? That to me is basically like, that's the point that Putin has been trying to avoid this whole time, yeah. but trying to win as big and as quickly as possible to not have those really bad decisions where there is no good outcome, but only a series of different bad outcomes. Yeah, well, I think that's a good point to actually end yeah. on because um, as I mentioned in the beginning, we'll be on sort of hiatus for a little bit, um, but I think that will, that that time, that hiatus will be a good point to revisit when we do come back on the next episode and see how far down that road we've gone, um, where where we are in that that cliff, that drop off, um, as well as see how the how other things in terms of the the various clocks at play have gone out over the the interceding weeks. So don't know how long the hiatus is going to be. If maybe it'll be shorter if I can if I can sneak away on a rainy day or something, sure, and uh, and plug in, but. Uh, It'll Again, war economies, not just for the 20th century. Yeah. Trademark. Yeah. Uh, all right. But yeah. So yeah, when we do come back, uh, um, you can probably use that as a jumping off point. But until then, again, you've always always thank you for your time. It's great. Great to actually have you here. You're yeah. in the same space and have this fantastic visual aid. And I it's apologies to Mr. Barrick. It is so much more than a visual aid. Um, it it yeah. is truly a uh, OWS is truly a, uh, a tremendous training educational tool, um, as noted by the fact that uh, Mr. Barrick's schedule is getting fuller and fuller of people asking to uh, have him come and do it for them uh, to to make themselves better and help with their own decision making. So um, for the purposes of today, fantastic visual aid. Right on. So we will uh, we'll try to have it these podcasts here as often as possible so that we can track uh, track what the board looks like. Yeah. And it's just great to be back in spaces and yeah. be in the same place and not staring into the little tiny hole on the computer here all the time. And uh, we don't have to be quite perhaps 10 feet apart. Because again, for the viewers there, this is a very big table. Yeah. if For future iterations, if we want to have a, a broader scope, we do have the tools. We have the equipment. Yeah. Um, right now, they're just being used by somebody else. So, yeah. But this is what we have. Um, no, but I think uh, we may, maybe in a future one we bring in Mr. Barrick because we, he and I both sort of owe each other, and we've been uh, a little bit delinquent in doing a an episode specifically focusing on uh, rapid prototype or rapid wargaming development for mm -hmm. the war in Ukraine um, because there were in in about the same time frame when he was working on OWS, um, I was cranking out some new stuff for the the tactical level game, the uh, the FMF game that we used. Um, in real time and, it, and the, the rapid development of, of those war games, those mechanics, those scenarios in and of itself is an area that I think um, would be of interest. We both want to do an episode and we just have both not had the time to do it, but maybe we can make that okay. something to do um, collectively when we come back here.
Okay. See you guys then. Yeah. All right. Well, great. To everyone in the Team Free Like audience, again, thank you for your time. And uh, if you are also enjoying hiatuses here in the coming weeks, we hope you do enjoy them and, and take some time off. Uh, but the the rabbit hole series and the broadcast series will be back before you know it. And I, I'll note finally with the broadcast, we do have some exciting things percolating for August. Um, we have some more looking at getting the new commanding officer of Marine Corps Tactics and Operations Group on to talk about some of the experimentation they've been doing. In fact, also, like we got a whole like kind of force design 2030 slash experimentation theme kind of percolating up. So talking to McTodd because McTodd does a lot of, uh, you know, on the ground experimentation. They're up there in 29 Palms and units rotate through. McTodd trains and evaluates them, but it's also an opportunity to do some experimentation because you have the people, the equipment there anyway, you get to try some new things. Um, working on talking to uh, some folks down at 2MEF with the um, Naval Task Force that they've been building out and some of the experimentation they've been doing in terms of reconnaissance, counter reconnaissance, as well as Naval integration, because that's been a high focus there. And we, we may have a special guest here to talk more talent management 2030. Still working that piece, so I don't want to overpromise. but point is we're going to have a lot of great stuff coming back um, in August. So we do hope that you join us then.